This is an audio presentation of God First Church, Cheltenham, England. A community of Jesus followers, worshipping God first, proclaiming God first, and together living God first lives. For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk. Jacob lived in the land where his father Isaac had stayed, the land of Canaan. This is the account of Jacob's family line. Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives, and he brought their father a bad report about them. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age. And he had made a richly ornate robe for him. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. He said to them, Listen to this dream I had. We were binding sheaves of corn out in the field when suddenly my sheep rose and stood upright while your sheaves gathered round mine and bowed down to it. His brothers said to him, Do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? And they hated him all the more because of his dream and what he had said. Then he had another dream, and he told it to his brothers. Listen, he said, I had another dream, and this time the sun and moon and eleven stars were bowing down to me. When he told his father, as well as his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, What is this dream you had? Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow to the ground before you? His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the matter in mind. Now his brothers had gone to graze their father's flocks near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, As you know, your brothers are grazing the flocks near Shechem. Come, I am going to send you to them. Very well, he replied. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them near Dothan. But they saw him in the distance, and before he reached them, they plotted to kill him. Here comes that dreamer, they said to each other. Come now, let's kill him and throw him into one of those cisterns and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. Then we'll see what comes of his dreams. When Reuben heard this, he tried to rescue him from their hands. Let's not take his life, he said. Don't shed any blood. Throw him into the cistern where in the wilderness, we're here in the wilderness, but don't lay a hand on him. Reuben said this to rescue him from them and take him back to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the ornate robe he was wearing, and they took him and threw him into the cistern. The cistern was empty. There was no water in it. As they sat down to eat their meal, they looked up and saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. Their camels were loaded with spices, balm, and myrrh, and they were on their way to take them down to Egypt. Judah said to his brothers, What will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, 
let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him. After all, he is our brother, our own flesh and blood. His brothers agreed. So when the Midianite merchants came by, his brothers pulled Joseph up out of the cistern and sold him for 20 shekels of silver to the Ishmaelites, who took him to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the cistern and saw that Joseph was not there, he tore his clothes. He went back to his brothers and said, the body isn't there. Where can I turn now? Then they got Joseph's robe, slaughtered a goat, and dipped the robe in the blood. They took the ornate robe back to their father and said, we found this. Examine it to see whether it's your son's robe. He recognized it and said, it is my son's robe. Some ferocious animal has devoured him. Joseph has surely been torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his clothes, put on sackcloth, and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and daughters came to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. No, he said, I will continue to mourn until I join my son in the grave. So his father wept for him. Meanwhile, in Egypt, Joseph was sold to Potiphar, one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard. Uh, Thanks, Abby. Uh, Yeah, Joseph, I love this story. Uh, uh, Some of you might know it before, uh, have heard it before. Some of you might have seen the, the stage play. Uh, some of you might have been in the stage play, uh, if you can sing a little bit at school. Uh, and uh, So you might know the story, but it's, it's a great story. And we're going to kind of work through that over uh, the next four times that I'm on. But I, I want to ask you a question first of all. Uh, uh, do you ever feel like, is God in charge? Do you ever ask the question, you know, is God in, char- in charge of my life? Because if God is in charge of my life, if he is the king uh, of heaven who's sovereign over everything, as the Bible says, well, he's clearly not doing a very good job. You know, he's obviously either evil because my life's a mess or he's incompetent because you don't know what's happened to me. You know, that, that, that if God's in charge, well, where is he? What's he doing? Why is my life like this? Why have I had so many disappointments, so many hurts, so many heartbreaks? Why is life so tough? If God's in charge, surely he would make my life different. Surely he wouldn't take me through the things I've done. Clearly he's not in charge, or he's incompetent, or he just doesn't care. And I don't know, uh, you might have that that emotion right to the front and center of you right now or you may have had it at other times and other seasons but I suspect at certain times we've even we, all of us have asked that question is God really in charge because what's happening to my life feels like this is not what's supposed to happen you know I was told in Sunday school if I stayed close to Jesus nothing bad had happened and look what's happening this is not right. Look at my, look at the child, look at the family, look at the situation, look at the marriage breakup, look, look at this, look at that, look at the job I've lost, look, you know, look at the death in my family, look at this, all the stuff of the world. And we can ask ourselves, well, you know, if there's so much suffering and sickness and heartache in the world, clearly God's not in charge. And the thing about Joseph is that his story actually, God hardly gets a mention in the story. But what you find is that God's fingerprints are all over this story. God's fingerprints are behind Joseph's story. It's like the best story to have that kind of sense of, well, is God at work here? So through Genesis, we did a series last year called The God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. And God is speaking, God is doing miracles and God's wrestling with with Jacob and he's doing all this kind of stuff and God's really present. And then suddenly in the Joseph story, where's God? There's a few dreams. 
Where's God in this story? But actually, this story is this amazing story where God's fingerprints on it. Joseph's story is about real people who make real choices. It's about people who react to the circumstances around them, who are responsible for their choices. Ultimately, they're responsible for their choices in this life and in eternity, they're responsible for their choices. But yet, hidden behind this, God, the sovereign ruler of the universe, is working out his purposes. Now, that doesn't mean nothing bad's going to happen. It doesn't mean your life's going to be lovely and everything's going to be kind of sunlit uplands and good holidays. But what it does mean is that actually in a world of, of selfishness and brokenness and sin, God's in charge. God is always working events for good. Now, sometimes you think, I wouldn't do it that way. And we'll see even in this morning's slot, I probably wouldn't have done it that way if I was God. I would have done it another way. But actually, God's always working in people's lives. He's always working in your life for good. Whether you like him or acknowledge him, whether you're a Christian or not, God, in the circumstances of your life, is working for your good. Now, it doesn't necessarily feel sometimes that that's easy and great, but what it does, what we need to understand from this story is that God is working. God works in even the most dysfunctional families. We have a super dysfunctional family. Jacob's family is the dysfunctional family. Uh, if we remember from last time, Abraham and uh, Abram had a son called Isaac, and he had two two sons. There were two twins. One came out a little bit before the other. Esau came out first, and Jacob comes out second, grasping the heel of his brother. And they come out, and they're rivals all the way through. And Isaac is not a great dad because what happens is he favours one son, Esau, and doesn't love Jacob. Uh, Isaac's wife, Rebecca, she self, instead of saying, hey, Isaac, this is destructive, this is no way, you shan't have favouritism in your family, she just sides with the, she sides with the younger brother and we've got this kind of tension and conflict. And so what happens is it's kind of this manipulation to get the father's love, to win the father's approval. And what happens is Jacob makes a plan with his mom to deceive his dad by putting on a cloak, we'll find a cloak later in this story, and slaughtering a goat, we'll find a goat later in this story, and, and deceiving, making some stew, dressing up as his brother and saying, bless me, bless me. But actually, even though he receives the blessing, it doesn't make his life full. He doesn't feel unfulfilled. So what happens is he's finding, where can I find fulfillment? Where can I find satisfaction? He, he, he goes away to a different, another place, sees this beautiful woman called Rachel, he says, I want to marry her. If I have her, my life's going to be full. I'm going to be happy. I'm going to be delighted. It's going to be great. He's deceived by Rachel's dad. And in the wedding night, it must have been a bit of a party because uh, uh, Jacob ends up in the wedding night. The next morning, he slept with the other woman. He slept with Rachel's sister, Leah. And he's like, imagine your wedding night. You wanted to marry one sister. Uh, let's not kind of push this too far, but you wanted to marry one sister. And you wake up with the other sister and you say, hey, 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 dad, what's going on here? And he said, well, you know, my the older sister, she's a little bit plain and boring. So you're going to have to have her first, work for her for seven years. Then you can have the other one. Uh, so immediately in this family, you've got these two women who are vying for love and affection. So what happens is uh, uh, Jacob wants to have kids with, with Rachel because she's the beautiful one and she, she doesn't. And God says, God closes her womb, she, she can't have kids. 
But Leo doesn't, he doesn't really care about, she, he sleeps with her and she has kids. She's popping them out. Yes, thank you. God's going to love me now. Another kid, yes. So she's popping out these kids. We can see them here. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah. She has these four kids and she's thinking, now God's going to, now, now her, Jacob's going to love me, but he doesn't. In fact, the fourth kid means, well, never mind. God loves me anyway. And then what happens is, so then Rachel thinks this isn't working very well. So um, why don't you, she says, okay, you're having kids with Leah. Why don't you sleep with my, my concubine? This is a mess up. I've got this servant. She's a nanny here. She's working in town. She's from, why don't you sleep with her? Oh, yeah, that sounds like a great idea. Let's have a couple of kids with them. So she has a couple of kids with them. And Rachel thinks, well, now she's going to love me. But no. So she has Gad and uh, she has Dan and Nathalie for the for the the servant, and then the other wife says, "This is ridiculous. You can't do this. Why do you sleep with my servant?" So then the officer goes goes again and sleeps with sleeps with the other servant. Two more kids pop. It's crazy already. He doesn't love any of them. Doesn't love the wives. Doesn't love the kids. Loves Rachel. Finally, God in His grace opens Rachel's womb. That's what it says in the Bible. I mean, you can use other medical terms are available, uh, opens Rachel's womb and she has a son called Joseph. Suddenly, yes, <laughs> Jacob thinks my life's going to be happy now. The wife I love has had the kid I love. So he's just fixated on Joseph. He has another son, Benjamin. Tragedy of tragedy, Rachel dies giving birth to Benjamin. So for, for Jacob, all his sense of purpose, his sense of love, his sense of worth, instead of being in God, is in Rachel. Rachel dies, so he transfers all his love and desire and sense of, will I feel loved, to, to Joseph and Benjamin. I mean, this is a messed up family. You know, imagine you've got a family with four wives, you've got a family with like Twelve brothers. There's a, there's a sister in there. We're not going to talk about her. It's a bit of a nasty story, uh, but you know. Um, so it's a messed up family. And what happens? It's absolutely clear that the dad loves one of the kids absolutely amazingly, and his brother, his younger brother Benjamin, and the others he doesn't care a fig about. Imagine that. Now, in one sense, it'd be great to be Joseph. It'd be great to be Joseph because, because Jacob loves Joseph unconditionally. It seems like whatever Joseph does, Jacob loves him. He's, he's for him. He delights in him. He, he, he's lavishing his love and affection on him. And whatever the other brothers do, he's not interested. You know, Jacob sits his GCSEs and he gets three C's. Oh, Joseph, you're so amazing. The other kids get A star, go off to the best universities. Well, you need to do better. Maybe you live in a family like that, I don't know. But, but there's, Jacob loves his son Joseph unconditionally. Actually, Jacob is sometimes called Israel, we're not going to go into that right now. It says, now, Jacob, or Israel, loved Joseph more than any of his sons, because he'd been born to him in an old age, and he made a richly ornamented robe for him. So here's this 17-year-old punk, who basically <laughs> thinks, I am the man. My father loves me. Well, clearly he loves me because there's something quite amazing about me. I am, I am all together. Father says, have a robe. And he says, he gets this robe on. I, I don't, we don't know if it's multicolored. I don't know who that is. It, I, there was a, it was a various cheesy actors that I could have chosen. So I thought, I'd choose an anonymous one. You could have had Philip Schofield. You could have a Donny Osmond. <laughs> 
whatever, I don't know, so I don't know who this geezer is, but anyway. So here he is in his amazing Technicolor dream coat or richly ornamented coat. This coat is a prince coat. You get one like this, it says, you are the prince. This family is a rich family. It's got lots of servants, lots of flocks, lots of land. It's a rich family. And it's almost like saying, you are the prince. We're picking you out and we're saying, Mike, you're the prince. Everybody else, we don't care about you. Mike, we love you only. Only you we love. We're going to put all our love and affection on you. We know you're a little busted, but hey, we don't care. We love you. We care for you. Here's the robe. You suckers, I don't care about you at all. And it's like, what? And so, but, but you get jo- Joseph, you can feel Joseph kind of growing. It's not good to do that to somebody who's, I don't know how old Mike is, but you know, he'd be mature enough to cope with that. But if you did it to somebody at 17, some lower six student, they're like, ooh, I am the man. <laughs> I really am. I really am. And so Joseph is like, he's already, he's, he's receiving this unconditional love. And you think, well, that's going to do great. But because the father's not even-handed about it, it's actually destructive both to the ones that are rejected and to the ones that love. If the father had loved them all unconditional, happy families. If you can do that with multiple wives. But hey, it always works out bad, by the way. If you think this is an example, I'm going to have multiple wives. Don't. Marry one and stay with her. You know, marry one husband, stay with him. But it always works out badly. But hey, you know, it should have been even-handed. This is not a story. This is not an example of how to do family life. You could say, but this is the family that God's going to save the world through. This is a family that's going to be the saviour. This is a family that's going to keep, keep people alive. This is going to be the family that Jesus is going to be born from. It's a complete mess. It's a completely dysfunctional family. And Joe's, Jacob's love for his, unconditional love for his son, actually is not doing his, his son any good, and it's not doing his brothers any good. God gets involved in the story just to kind of pump the, <laughs> prime the pump. Because jo- Jacob has these dreams. Uh, he, he has these dreams. Basically, the first dream is he's, he, he's, he's binding corn. You know, you might know the story. He's binding corn, and the, uh, his sheaf stands up tall, and uh, the other eleven sheaves, aka the brothers, all bow down. Now, if you'd had that, and your brothers already hated you because you'd been given this cool, amazing coat, you might think, "I'm just going to keep quiet about that." No, no, not Joseph. He is like, "Hey, boys, hey, boys, I've had this prophetic dream about me." I've had this dream about how I am amazing. You are all going to bow down to me. And, and, you know, let's face it, that is realistic. That is what God's going to do. You're going to bow down to me, and I'm going to be lifted up high. And obviously his brother said, it's amazing God has spoken. We can see that in you as well. We absolutely love you for that. Great. You know, if you're a prophetic person and you feel God speaks to you, don't go around saying stupid stuff. You know, when Mary, when the angel Gabriel comes to Mary and says, you're going to give birth to the saviour of the world, she goes around the whole village and puts it in the newspapers, puts it on Facebook. No, she doesn't. She hides it in her heart. Not Joseph. He's put it on Facebook. Man, I am the dude. Does, it gets worse because actually then he has a, a dream, sun, moon and, seven, uh, sun, moon and 11 stars, and they're all bowed down. Sun and moon is mum and dad. And, and 11 stars. This isn't just an arrogant dream, it's also a, a socially subversive dream. Because in that culture, that the young always bow to the old. So Benjamin bowed to Joseph, Joseph should bow, you know, the brothers, Reuben should get the most honour in the family, the oldest brother, and then the wives, and then the dad. And there should be this kind of bowing down and honouring culture. But here's the second to youngest saying, everyone's going to bow down to me. This is very subversive. 
This, and, and, and it's actually, the brothers hate him for it, because not only is he arrogant, he's basically overturning all the social customs. These are radically subversive dreams. Now, interestingly, Jacob asked, he's so, Jacob even thinks, Joseph, I love you loads, but you've got completely out of line, and he rebukes him and says, what, do you think me, me and your mum are going to bad on you too? But while the brothers hate him, jo- Jacob thinks, hmm, maybe there's something going on in this. But what's happening to, as I said earlier, what's happening to, to, to Joseph is, is, is he's spoilt, he's arrogant, he's becoming a manipulative liar. It says uh, in verse 2, it says, Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers and he brought their father a false report or a bad report or an evil report about them. He's a telltale. He's saying, you know, my brothers... They're really not doing the job you asked them to. And I'm telling you, Dad, because I'm a good boy and, and you love me. And So he basically lies about his brothers. Yeah, He's manipulating his way. Even though his good father loves him unconditionally, he's manipulating his way into his father's love. This is not a good guy. This is not a good guy. This partiality, this is not written as an example of like, Jake, Joseph is like the hero and he's the one to follow. Kind of, this is how the Bible works. We set out these people that are really amazing people, like Joseph, and, and what you've got to do is, you've got to follow his example. It, that's not the, that's not the gospel, that's not the Bible. It's not like, here's, here's Joseph, and he's a great guy, follow his example. Here's Jacob, he's an amazing guy, follow his example. It isn't like that. What you get is these stories, it's like, Here's a guy who, who we read the story further on and he's going to become the prince of Egypt and save everyone from, from death and famine. He's messed up. You don't read this story to say, well, isn't, I wish I could be like Joseph. You read this story and say, I am like Joseph. I'm self-obsessed. I'm arrogant. I'm insecure. You know, I can lie. I can manipulate my image. I'm just like him. I need Jesus. I need Jesus. This, um, Pride and arrogance of, of, of Joseph is, <clears throat> is like this ticking time bomb under this family. Because the brothers hated him. <clears throat> you, do, you find when in, in the Old Testament, if, if phrases are repeated, uh, Old Testament writers, Moses probably wrote this, he, 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 they didn't waste words. It wasn't like, you know, you read these books, I never read them, but you know, you read these kind of romance novels and it's kind of flowery language or you you read War and Peace, no, no one's ever read War and Peace and there's all these long incredible descriptions going on, you know it feels like just cut to the chase in Jewish literature they cut to the chase, they didn't waste words but yet here they get three times his brothers hated him you get verse 4, verse 5 and verse 11 it says Joseph's brothers hated him Sp- could not speak a kind word to him and then Joseph has a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. They couldn't speak a kind word, and then they hated him more. And then when he finished the dream, he says, will you actually rule over us? And they hated him all the more. This is like a bubbling cauldron that's going to boil over. This is seething hate that's going to blow this family apart. And we see that. We see that, that, that... That Joseph, by the time he's got the, his, his, his coat, he's, he's exempted from uh, manual labor. He's not asked to do anything. His brothers are off working. Uh, he's at home playing PlayStation, hanging out, drinking gin and tonics with his dad. You know, he's hanging loose and they're all working. And they says, just go and check out on them. Because you, you checked them before and you brought me a really helpful report. He doesn't know he's alive. And he says, good, good, check on them again. 
So he goes and checks on him again, he, uh, and, and basically finds his brothers. And I think it's a spur of the moment thing. It says he came to his brothers, and they stripped him of his robe. That word stripped him doesn't mean they, they gently asked him to remove his coat and hang it up on the coat peg. It's the same word it means to skin an animal. They see them, seize him and literally skin him. Take the, in anger, they rip off this robe and skin him. And then it says they threw him in the pit, or oh, this cistern. Now the cistern, it says, didn't have any water in, but they're basically this, this big hole in the ground, this big dark hole in the ground. Obviously, if he'd been water in, he would have drowned. But he's thrown into this pit. And, and the, the, the word that's thrown there means like to abandon to death. So they strip him. His, he comes to his brothers. His brothers hate him. They strip him and they throw him into death. They abandon him to death in the darkness. And you find out later on that, that in, in chapter 42, when there's a recall in the story, that Joseph cries out to his brothers. He's saying, you know, help me, help me, don't leave me. He's saying, don't abandon me, don't forsake me, don't, don't leave me. Uh, maybe when his brothers ignore him, maybe he's crying to God, God, where are you? This isn't supposed to happen. I'm not supposed to be naked and alone in the darkness in this pit. God, where are you? Why have you forsaken me? What's happening? He's sold, then they decide not to kill him. Reuben intervenes, they decide not to kill him. They pull him out of the pit and they sell him for 20 pieces of silver. You might already be making a few links, but somebody will come to later in this story. But he's sold as a slave, he's stripped naked, he's abandoned in the darkness. This is our hero and it's not happening how it's supposed to be. And it feels like, is God really in charge? Is God really in charge? He must have asked that question, is God really in charge? Is this, is, this isn't what was supposed to happen. And you might have had a series of events, probably not as violent as this, but you might have had a series of events and think, is God in, in charge? I'm in a three with, with a guy and, and, and I keep asking, how did all these circumstances add up together? This doesn't seem like any kind of reasonable thing. Why, why did that happen? That happened, that happened, that happened. Uh, you know, you think, God, that's not, that's not what's supposed to happen. That's not in the script. Why? You might have asked those questions. Why? Why did that happen? You know, I've asked the question, why, why did my dad die at 17? That's not what's supposed to happen. Why do I feel the consequences of that all the time? You know, it's supposed to be different, isn't it? It's supposed to be good and gracious, and I'm supposed to be feel loved by God, but yet why all this? I think Jake, Joseph must have had a, a low moment. It's almost like he's buried in the grave. I mean, it's, I think the, the, the moment has a profound effect on him, as we'll see. But actually, what, is God really in charge? Because it seems like there's a series of unfortunate events. There is a film, isn't there, called A Series of Unfortunate Events. So it seems like just there's a whole lot of coincidences happening. Jacob sends, his, Jacob sends Joseph to his brothers. Yeah, it's just day to day. His brothers go from Shechem to Dothan. Why? I don't, we don't know. A stranger just happens to say, hear the brother saying, hey, let's move from Shechem where they're grazing the flocks to Dothan. The stranger just happens to hear that. Joseph just happens to meet the stranger, and the stranger just happens to tell him, oh, they've gone to Dothan. 
The brothers happened to see Joseph approaching with his coloured robe on as, he, as he's approaching. And in that moment, they just decide, it just happens, they decide to kill him. Reuben, the older brother, just happens to say, no, let's not kill him, let's throw him in the pit. Reuben then goes away for some reason, we're not told, and it just happens that a caravan of traders are coming along, and they say, the other brothers say, well, why don't we pull him out of the pit and make some money out of this and sell him? It just kind of happened. It just happens that Joseph's taken to Egypt and sold as a slave. It just seems like it's just a series of unfortunate events. But actually, in the series of unfortunate events, and this is what we find in the story, God's at work. The brothers are still responsible for their evil. The slave traders are still responsible for their slave tradery. But it seems like God is at work. And I think one of the challenges in your life, if you're asking, is God in charge, is, is to see God's hand at work. And sometimes you don't know what he's doing. But you have to say, is God at work here? I don't know whether Joseph thought at that point, is God at work? But as you read the story, you realize God is at work. But actually, some of you might think, well, I wouldn't have done it that way. If I was wanting to change... Let me step back. I'm getting feedback. Uh, if I was wanting to change jo- Joseph's heart, I would have done it a different way. What I would have done if I was God is I'd have appeared as an angel. And I'd have appeared to Joseph... You, Joseph, are an arrogant young man, and you, Joseph, need to repent, because if you don't repent, your brothers will kill you. So I'm calling you, Joseph, to repent. And you, Jacob, you are a partial father, and you're, you're destroying your family. And you, brothers, you've got a seething hate in your heart. Now fall upon your knees before me and repent. Why doesn't God do that? Why doesn't God bring an angel and say, stop this? You know, your husband's divorcing you. Your, 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 your mother's incredibly sick. Why doesn't God just send an angel and make it all right? He can. Because we get another place in Dothan. It only appears twice in the Bible. It's a random place called Dothan. The first time we get Joseph in Dothan and he's in a pit and he's crying to God, God, where are you? Brothers, will you save me? Well, pull me out. Don't leave me to die here. Silence. Another time in Dothan, but this time instead of a quiet place, it's become a large city, so it's a number of hundreds of years further on. Elisha is in the town of Dothan, he's surrounded by loads of enemies, and they pray, God help us! And he says to his servant, open up your eyes. He says, around chariots of fire. And you think, that's the kind of God I want. Chariots of fire, <laughs> you know? I've lost my job, I pray, chariots of fire, an angel, you know, somebody's violently, somebody's sick, here I come, this is the God I want. What you don't want is the God who says, and you, where are you, God, where are you? I don't know if you like the, uh, uh, the picture by Edward Monk, it's called The Scream, and everyone analyzes what's going on, he's on a bridge. Everybody else's life, the guys in the background, their life seems to be going on fine. And he's got this, the, 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 the scream person's got this kind of inner angst of despair. Why? You know, people debate, is he going to throw himself off the bridge? Is this a kind of a suicide moment? And they're just asking, why? My God, my God, Why? Why have you forsaken me? Why? 
But it's interesting because actually what God wants to do in Joseph and what God wants to do in that family is something greater than an angel revelation. Angel revelations are not going to fix it. What's going to happen is God's going to let circumstances unroll. He's going to get let evil and arrogance and pride have its way. Because he's going to do something in jo- Joseph. He's going to do something in the brothers. But he's going to do something to change and save the world. So what happens, if you know the story, Joseph goes to Egypt and becomes prince of Egypt. There's a famine and he organizes that the, the whole of Egypt gets food and the, all of the surrounding nations. He becomes the saviour of the world in that, that sense. And interestingly, God's salvation is radically subversive. It's not what you'd expect. You know, you've probably heard me hinting. There's another guy in the story whose name never gets mentioned, but he's just like Joseph. Jesus, unconditionally loved by his father, don't hear that the father's partial. He's only got one and only son, so he's focused rightly upon him. Um, he's loved by his father. He's sent to earth to share our flesh, to be our brother. And we reject him. It says he came to his own, but his own received him not. We didn't, it's not just an angel of heaven that's appeared. The God of heaven has appeared. And we haven't fallen on our faces and said, oh, thank you. I will repent of my pride and arrogance. What we've done is we've said, let's kill him. Let's kill him. Jesus came to his own brothers, and the brothers stripped him. Stripped him of his robe. They... they, They put nails into his flesh and his flesh was torn apart. He's nailed to a cross. And everybody says, so much for his talk. So much for his big dreams. So much for him being the saviour of the world, the guy that's going to destroy the temple and build it in three days. So much for him. God has clearly abandoned him. This is a radically upside down way to serve the world. This is the kings and rulers of the earth bowing to a carpenter. This is not an event that made the front page, really. There's loads of people crucified in those days. But yet, this is an event where God walks into our suffering. Where God shares the pain of Joseph. He shares the the pain of the world. He's stripped naked, nailed to a cross, abandoned in the darkness. And they say, God has abandoned him. Let God come and save him. And he cries out from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And there's silence. No angels or chariots of fire, no glory and hallelujahs. He slips into the grave and dies. It seems all wrong. It seems this cannot be the way that God's going to feed the world and change the world and bring an end to my pain. His blood is shed. 
His body's broken. His butt is laid in the ground. But obviously with Jesus, there's a resurrection. And with Joseph, there's a resurrection. He's pulled out. Joseph is set as a slave. He's got some lessons to learn. Obviously, Jesus bursts out of the grave. Bursts out of the grave. And he bursts out of the grave to say, I am with you. Let me finish with this thought. If you feel like, where's my, what's happened to my life? and Where's God and why has all this happened? And God's clearly not in control. You need to, to look at the one who was abandoned to death. You need to look at the, the one who's crucified for you. The one who, who, who seemed to ask that question, why have you forsaken me? It's okay to ask why. You know, Jesus asked why. It's all right to say, well, you know, he's just going through a metaphor. He's just playing, playing through Psalm 22. No, I think there genuinely is a sense of, this feels horrendous. I've lived for eternity in the love of my Father, and now I feel abandoned. This isn't what's supposed to happen. But Jesus kind of knew it was going to happen. He kind of knew, I'm going to take your brokenness, your emptiness, your disappointments, your shame. I'm going to take your sin. I'm going to take the evil done against you and the evil that you do. I'm going to take it down into the grave. But actually for us, you're going to say, well, how do I cope? How do I cope with, with this? How do, it's fine, I'm going through this kind of sense of pain and this brokenness and it feels like, God, where are you? You've got to understand that God is at work. You don't know what he's doing. Joseph, in that moment in the pit, or when he's pulled out and sold as a slave, he probably feels relieved. He doesn't know what he's doing. He doesn't know, oh, God's going to send me to Egypt and I'm become a, a servant and then I'm going to get to prison and then I'm going to, get, and then I'm going to, to meet Pharaoh and I'm going to become the second in the land. He doesn't know that's what's going to happen. And if you're going through tough times, you don't know what's going to happen. You can't say, oh, this is happening and this is happening, so this will happen and this will happen. You don't know that. But what you can know and what we must know is that God is with us. I believe what sustained Joseph, that kept him, was first the horror of the death and resurrection experience that he died to that old, arrogant, proud Joseph and he's abandoned to God and says, God, it's you that I need. It's not about me, I'm not the man, it's you, it's you that I need. There's something that happened in that moment, but I think there's something that there was deeper that we can all experience. I believe that even though they stripped the robe off him, he lived in his father's love. He lived clothed in his father's love. I think that Jesus, when they stripped him naked and beat him and whipped him and spat upon him, he was never naked because he's clothed in his father's love. He's clothed in his father's love. And I think the reality is, whatever your circumstances, the one thing you can hold on, you don't know what God's doing. You don't know the pain. And, you know, you might have been a brother who's made stupid mistakes, or you may have been a Joseph who's arrogant and proud. You, you, you don't know. You may have been a, Je- a Jacob who's been a bad father. You, you don't know why. And the temptation is to blame yourself and say, oh, I've done that wrong, or I've done that wrong, or I've done that wrong. And sometimes that's true. But sometimes just the world happens. Stuff happens. And you can't work out why. But what you've got to do is to understand that, that no, in all these things, says Paul in Romans, God works for the good of those who love him. 
And the implication is if, if you don't love Him, you're not going to understand, you're not going to be clothed in His love and feel that one thing that can take you through it. You're alone in the dark. You're like the, the scream on the bridge. But actually for us, we're clothed in His love. It says in Romans, I'll read this and then uh, the band, you can come back and move your furniture and we'll do all that. It says, this is Romans, just read you the longer bit. It says, we know... We know. It's not some of us know. We might think this was a good idea or we've got our fingers crossed behind our back and whistle a happy tune or we kind of know somewhere in the Bible vaguely. It says we know that in all things, stripped, naked, abandoned, potentially murdered, sold into slavery. We know in all things, sickness, health, we know in all things, God works for the good, say good, good of those who love him. For if God is for us, who can be against us? Whatever the world throws at you, you and God are a majority. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How? It's like, it's impossible. If he's given the Jesus' death and resurrection on the cross, how is he not going to also, along with him, graciously, freely, undeserved, unmerited, unconditionally, give us all things? What then, who then, can separate us from the love of Christ? It's a rhetorical question. He's going to say, nothing shall trouble No. Hardship? No. Persecution? No. Famine? No. Nakedness? No. Danger? Sword? No. 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 Divorce? No. Sickness? No. Brokenness? No. Disappointment? No. Unemployment? No. Moving to a different country? No. No, in all these things we're more than conquerors through him who clothed us, sorry, in my translation, with his love. For I'm convinced that neither life nor death, nor the present nor the future, nor any powers or brothers or evil, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation can separate us from the love of God. Is it in Christ Jesus? This is the story of Joseph. It seems a disaster. It seems a mess out of a dysfunctional family, out of a partial father, arrogant sons, hatred brothers, out of the evil of the world, God's going to bring great salvation. And you need to hold on, whatever your circumstances, that past, present or future, as Paul says, you need to hold on to that one thing. You are loved by God. You might have sinned. He forgives you if you ask him you're loved by God. His wave, as I said earlier, washes over you and makes it new. The wave of God's love is pouring over Joseph in the hardest moment. And it's not God is punishing him. It's God is committed to changing him to save the world. For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk.